Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, May 4th. May the 4th be with you. And here's what we're going to talk about this week. Pew, 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 pew. Eli Lilly's long-awaited treatment for Alzheimer's met its goal in an all-important clinical trial. We'll explain the results, their implications, and the backstory of what could be a blockbuster drug. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including a busy week of earnings and the highlights from Stats Breakthrough Summit in San Francisco. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I'm thrilled to announce the second season of Color Code, STAT's podcast on racial health inequities. In our second season, we're taking things local to my hometown of Long Island. Long Island's history is one of segregation. Um, Long Island continues to be one of the most segregated parts of our country. Where you live has a huge impact on your health. Long Island is a microcosm of racial health inequities that exist in suburbs across the country. The racial residential segregation in a place like Nassau County, starting from infant mortality to premature death and everything in between, we see that many of these causes of death are consistently higher in communities of color. We'll hear from researchers, patients, clinicians, and advocates on the health inequities Long Islanders face and how communities here are trying to close these gaps. From the front lines of a battle over a landfill to the efforts to address food insecurity and disparities in maternal mortality across the island. The season premieres later this spring with episodes airing every other week. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm. So Meg, how was your first week at CNN? Feels like I've been here for months. <laughs> uh, it has, it's been great. It's been very busy. Um, I'm now, you know, in the city five days a week, which is just really cool. I mean, being in this newsroom is amazing, and just seeing how this, you know, this newsroom works, it's great. Um, I've gotten to do a few stories, one of which we will, at least one of which we'll talk about today. I was very happy to have um, some, you know, Alzheimer's data to get to talk about. It was my first story for CNN. It was nice, familiar territory, so that felt great. And Adam, you are coming to us bright and early from San Francisco. Why are you there? Yeah, I'm uh, currently in a hotel room recording this podcast. But yeah, I'm out here for uh, Stats Breakthrough Summit. It's our two-day spring conference. We're having it right down on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. So really nice views, although it has been rainy, which is really weird for May in San Francisco. But uh, actually, it looks like a really nice day today. And uh, yeah, so yesterday, which is Wednesday, was uh, day one. I would say like the highlight uh, yesterday was, it was really cool. Um, Emily Whitehead, you probably know the name. Uh, she was the first girl, uh, well, one of the, I guess, I guess was the first patient to be treated with a CAR-T for blood cancer. Uh, you know, she almost, almost died from the treatment, but then it cured her. Uh, and she, uh, Emily and her dad, uh, presented and and had a fireside chat 
yesterday. It was really, it was a really cool thing to see her. Um, she just turned 18 and uh, is getting, is graduating from high school uh, in a couple of weeks and then is going off to Penn State to, for college. Uh, so it just kind of, you know, it's a, it, it sort of really brought home in very human terms, uh, you know, the kind of the power of these CAR-T, of these cell therapies for cancer. That was pretty, it was a pretty cool moment. I mean, I feel like we need to ask you about your week because yet you, we, you, we've talked about ours. How's your week been? <laughs> you know, it's been, uh, it's been good. Uh, I was off on Monday and Tuesday. I was out of town, which is to say that my first day back in the office was Wednesday, which was the day of the Alzheimer's data that you mentioned before, which we will speak about in much greater detail um, later in this episode. But that's pretty much defined uh, my workday since then. Weather's nice. Can't complain. We had a bunch of earnings, guys. Uh, continued earnings uh, week. Um, Damien Moderna is a company you follow closely. Uh, they had they reported numbers this morning. Uh, what did those look like? They did, and and so this is kind of a continuation of something we've we've been talking about for a while, which is that the days of pandemic largesse are ending for Moderna, which the company has guided to, and which everybody saw coming. But I think. The numbers that they put out for the first quarter really illustrate that, which is to say that they did pretty well in terms of selling their COVID-19 vaccine, but noted that the billions of dollars they made in that first quarter were pretty much just deferred orders from last year. And that in the next quarter, in the second quarter of 2023, their sales are going to fall into like the 200 to $300 million range. Um, this is on a product that did up nearly $20 billion just a year ago. So a predicted decline, but also a really dramatic one. And so this is a company that has been booking huge profits since the, at least since the beginning of, of the commercial sales of their vaccine that will probably slip into being a loss-making company again in just the next quarter after again making billions and billions of dollars. The company saw this coming. We all saw this coming. This is just kind of how this is going to go for them because of the bizarre nature of being a pandemic business. But they again affirmed something that they had said, which is that they expect their vaccine portfolio, including the COVID vaccine, the flu vaccine, the RSV vaccine, and a future triple omnibus vaccine uh, to eventually bring in $8 billion to as much as $15 billion in revenue um, in the years to come, which is a very ambitious goal. But that's what they've set out. That's what they are committed to. And it's what they're defending. I think we talked about on this podcast before, there was a lot of uh, Wall Street skepticism as to whether they can make it. But you know, in fairness to Moderna, there's been a lot of Wall Street skepticism about them for many years. And, you know, they got this far. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, you know, it's a similar story for Pfizer, un unsurprisingly. I mean, similar things are happening in terms of just sort of the COVID boom and and now bust, at least from a you know sales perspective and a, and a comparisons perspective. Um, Evan Siegerman over at BMO put out a note on Pfizer earnings yesterday um, called Pfizer can't get no respect or satisfaction. Um, it's kind of crazy. I mean, we've talked about this. We talked about this last week um, with the fact that Lily is just going such, you know, gangbusters, like, and, and even further on the Denanumab data, which we'll talk about. Um, but, you know, Lily is bigger than Pfizer. It's now, you know, with J&J's spin of Kenview, it's, you know, consumer health business. I think somebody, it was Jared Holtz at Mizuho, who I love to quote, um, put out a note this morning saying it's the second, Lily is the second biggest healthcare company now after United Health by market value, which is just nuts. And I sort of have this like foreboding feeling for Lily. It feels like Gilead, like during the hepatitis C days. And you like, mm. can companies ever sustain this kind of momentum, I guess is the question. Well, speaking of Lily weight loss uh, drugs, 
Novo Nordisk, the maker of another wildly popular obesity drug called Wagovi, uh, also reported uh, results uh, this Thursday. Uh, sales, you know, up again uh, strongly. But, uh, you know, again, as an indication of kind of the demand for uh, for these drugs and also for the supply issues that have cropped up. You know, th- these companies are having a hard time making uh, all of these drugs. Uh uh, Novo said today that they were going to limit uh, some what they call starter doses for new patients in the U.S. to make sure that there is a steady supply for you know people who are already on the medication. Yeah, it was interesting. It's probably a temporary disruption in, in the way that's all going to work. And in some ways, it's a good problem to have, which is to say a medicine where the demand exceeds even your outstretched attempts to supply it. Um, but again, and, and you know, this is a something we touch on in, on this podcast so often, but the big proving point for this medicine and, and likely this will trickle over to medicines like it are the data from a clinical trial we will see this summer as to whether treatment for people diagnosed with obesity with this medicine actually correlates to better long-term outcomes in the form of cardiovascular health and death. And that really is, I mean, it's, it's all important in a way that it's kind of hard to exaggerate in that, that will set the tone for how reimbursement shakes out for this medicine in the long term. Um, because despite this massive surge of popularity and this huge bolus of patients demanding this drug, we've heard from experts that there's an expectation that, you know, people will eventually, people will cycle on and off of it, that this initial demand, it does not guarantee a sustained huge commercial presence for this drug. And without... Uh, reimbursement from you know government programs and from private insurers, it might in fact end up being kind of a blip. To your point about Gilead Sciences and and um, how that looked around the time of their the early launch of their hepatitis C treatment. So it really remains to be seen what the Novo story looks like even two years from now. Yeah, you know, and another sort of sign, uh, or maybe a societal shift, I guess maybe we would call it, uh, Jenny Craig, the sort of, you know, I think everyone knows Jenny Craig, sort of the weight loss uh, stores. They had about 500 stores, company-owned and franchise stores in the U.S. and Canada. They announced uh, this week that they're shutting down, uh, or at least shutting down all of their all of their weight loss centers. Uh, and again, you know, these new obesity, these new weight loss treatments were uh, were mentioned as kind of one of the reasons why those stores are being shut down. And it's not, it's not like Jenny Craig is trying to kind of transition to some kind of e-commerce model. And I guess that remains to be seen what they do. But again, you know, it's like the we're, we're sort of moving into this sort of new era of, uh, of weight loss treatments. In other new eras, um, a 60-year quest to develop an RSV vaccine is finally concluded, or at least concluded with the first one. Um, GSK's RSV vaccine for older adults, um, ages 60 plus, was approved by the FDA this week. And guys, we were talking about a drug name last week, Voust. Um, this one is is a really interesting name. I'm going to spell the name and then you guys can say it. Like I had to like say it aloud <laughs> okay. before I was like, this is brilliant. A R E X V Y. Somebody Arexvi? say it. Arexvi. And the name of Arexvi. the disease it's vaccinating against is RSV. Like, and the name of the vaccine is RxV. <laughs> I guess I like it, but then the temptation is to pronounce it like RxV, which just sounds like I'm saying RSV with like an offensive French accent. And I don't know if that is exactly what they want commercially, but what I what do I know? Feels like it's exactly what they want commercially. It seems like, and this is this is an this is an injection for people sixty years and older, right? This yes. is like for older. All right, Rexvi. Okay, 
Sure. Why not? And we're at the beginning of, you know, what's expected to be sort of a, a long, you know, series of RSV vaccines coming to market. So, you know, Pfizer has its PDUFA, you know, expected FDA decision this month um, for its older adult vaccine. They also have the maternal vaccine. So when they're vaccinating during pregnancy to try to protect babies in the first six months of life, that is coming up. Um, the FDA decision, I believe, is later this summer. Um, and then further out, you know, so Moderna also has an older adult vaccine that's coming along. Bavarian Nordisk also does, uh, which has a really interesting mechanism. It, it uses, I believe, the mpox virus. Um, so that one is like a little bit different, um, but a little bit further behind. We saw J&J drop out of the RSV vaccine raise, probably seeing how crowded the field was. So I think it's sort of fascinating to see how this will play out commercially if and when all these become available. Of course, people of my category, parents of young children, are wondering where the heck the vaccine is for babies and young kids. Um, that is further behind. Moderna, I believe, is in phase one. Pfizer doing a phase one. So it's very early. GSK had been working on a pediatric vaccine, but um, I think stopped because phase two suggested it wasn't really working. Um, so, you know, still waiting on that one, but there's definitely movement in this field. And it's a really cool scientific story um, how they, you know, and, and sadly starts with tragedy, uh, but, you know, how they, you know, developed um, these different constructs for the vaccines, which I think ultimately played a role in COVID vaccines, too. I look forward to mispronouncing the names of the future RSV vaccines. (laughs) So the news that we teased agonizingly something like 14 times in the previous segment of this podcast, we will now actually discuss, which is the phase three data from Denanumab, an Alzheimer's disease treatment from Eli Lilly, uh, which was disclosed, or at least large chunks of it were disclosed via press release this week. Adam, what were the headlines? Yeah, so let's just go through the numbers real quick. Uh, as you mentioned, Damien's drug denatumab made by Eli Lilly, phase three study. So the top line, the headline number is a 35% slowing in the rate of cognitive and functional decline compared to placebo. That is uh, measured by a, a, well, I guess it's a, a proprietary scale or or scale that was developed by Eli Lilly that, that basically takes, combines measures of cognition and measures of function into a sort of one endpoint. It's never been used to uh, to secure an approval of an Alzheimer's drug before, but that's the that's the measure they used. They also looked at a more conventional measure of, of cognitive function, uh, and on that scale, uh, their drug denanumab uh, re- reduced or slowed the rate of cognitive decline by 36%. Now, that's a number that a lot of people have been looking at because it's that's the number you can sort of compare with Lakembi, which is the Alzheimer's drug uh, approved that's uh, marketed by ASI and Biogen. Um, Lakembi uh, slows cognitive decline by 27%. So again, here, looking at 36% versus 27%. So people say, oh, okay, denanumab looks a little bit better on efficacy. Um, Of course, safety, hugely important with Alzheimer's drugs. And this is where um, there's some debate and some, maybe, I don't know, controversy, but people are sort of maybe raising their eyebrows a little bit. There were two patient deaths in the denanumab study. Those were both related to uh, brain swelling and brain bleeds. That's that side effect commonly called aria. Um, again, so that sort of raises some concerns. There was a th- actually a third patient who also suffered a serious case of aria who later died. They haven't definitively tied that death to denanumab, but a lot of people will sort of lump it in together. And so, guys, we can talk about you know the comparisons and what this all means, but you know, kind of 
It looks on the efficacy side maybe a little bit better than Lecambi, um, maybe a little bit worse on safety. But again, maybe sort of the other big headline is we have a second amyloid targeted antibody for Alzheimer's, which has positive phase re- data showing, you know, sign- statistically significant at least, uh, slowing of cognition or slowing the, you know, the progression of the disease, both from a cognitive standpoint and functional standpoint. And that's, you know, that's uh, an, another advancement for the uh, for for the disease. Thinking back and thinking about what this means for the amyloid hypothesis, I, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir and couldn't, <laughs> you know, nobody feels this more than you guys, but like, I would love to hear Sharon Begley about this. You know, she wrote that amazing story um, about yeah. how, you know, scientists are really digging in on this cabal around the amyloid hypothesis. And now, I mean, and, and it made so much sense. It was like, people have been doing this for two decades, targeting, trying to remove the plaque buildups in the brain or prevent them from building up and thinking that that will have a direct result on the course of the disease. And it never did. And so it really made a lot of people start to say, maybe the amyloid hypothesis is wrong. And this is not what drives Alzheimer's. Amyloid is part of Alzheimer's, but it's not the cause of the disease progression. Where, what do you think these two trials mean for the amyloid hypothesis? I wouldn't say that they're a vindication for the almost single-minded pursuit of amyloid in certain quarters, specifically those that kind of pull the strings of funding. If you go back to to Sharon's story um, on the cabal, uh, the means by which other research areas were stifled, I just don't think there's any any that these results would necessarily vindicate that or excuse that. That being said, I think, well, I, I think sometimes we, we misconstrue what the amyloid hypothesis debate was, which is that very few people argued, you know, as, as you just said, Meg, that amyloid has nothing to do with Alzheimer's. Rather, it was the notion that the amyloid cascade hypothesis, that amyloid was sort of the first mover that got the ball rolling on neurodegeneration. If you could simply clear it out or prevent its accumulation, you could halt or even, you know, reverse symptoms of the disease. That has never played out. And and nobody really argues for that even now. So with the results for lecanemab and now denanemab showing that a really, really aggressive clearing of those amyloid plaques leads to a statistically significant, albeit modest, delay in the uh, advance of symptoms of Alzheimer's disease or the advance of the cognitive decline does kind of follow logic that, yeah, there's amyloid is important. It plays a role. But I think the the take that I've heard from, from a lot of people in, in neurology who've been following this for many years is that these are good first steps that in the history of oncology or virology, the early drugs for any given disease or group of diseases are often fine and they fall out of use in time or they become part of combination treatments, which is definitely the case um, in virology. And so through that lens, <laughs> we've spent decades chipping away at this at the amyloid hypothesis and have come to where I think the the state of the field is right now, which is that drugs like these that absolutely dramatically clear out amyloid plaques have led to this real, but not life-changing necessarily, um, improvement in patients' actual lives. And that this is maybe the starting pistol for finding either treatments that work in concert with amyloid blocking therapies or that might work faster or, or, or maybe, you know, identifying patients who might benefit most from these therapies. But it's, it's not as though we've kind of like the checkered flag is here and and we did it. And thank God we did all this work on amyloid because we've cured Alzheimer's disease. We're really nowhere near that. 
you know, to your point, Damien, you know, and, and there's always this debate about how clinically meaningful these results are uh, and whether or not, you know, it really matters to patients, right? You know, we talk about this, you know, they often talk about this in relative terms, right? And we talk about 36% slowing of disease progression, what that means. So, you know, Lily kind of thought about this and it is interesting and I don't know how, maybe it's too early to sort of know how people will perceive this, but, you know, they did do some interesting analyses and they were pre-specified in the study and they looked at, um, they looked at patients, what they, what they call disease stabilization. So basically patients, they wanted to see sort of patients, um, not having any change in their in their cognitive scores. And what they found was just under half, like 47% of the pe- people, the participants in the study who were treated with denanumab, uh, 47% had no change in their cognitive score uh, over over one year. They looked at that at, at one year. So that, you know, when we talked to Lily about this, uh, you know, they they brought that up as kind of a, you know, when they, when they talk to patients, what patients say to them, you know, I have, I've been diagnosed with mild Alzheimer's and, you know, I can, I can still function. I can still carry on conversations. I can still manage my finances. I can still drive and I'll be happy if I can just keep that level, you know, that level of function, that level of cognition. I, if, if it doesn't get any worse, that's okay for me. And so this 47% of these patients who were over at least, at least a one year period who were sort of able to, you know, their disease did not get any worse. Lily says that's a very meaningful measure. And so, you know, again, we'll see how people perceive that eventually, you know, when the drug gets approved. But, you know, that's kind of, they're trying to sort of get at this point of, you know, what all these numbers mean to the actual people who who are, you know, unfortunately diagnosed with this disease and now maybe have a treatment that could be offered to them. And thinking about the differences between Lakembi and Denanumab, burp, 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 um, is <laughs> that <laughs> Denanumab was designed, at least these trials were designed, so that patients could stop taking it um, when they've reached a certain threshold of, you know, amyloid clearance. And my understanding from talking with Dan Skowronski, um, Lily's chief of research, um, is that that threshold is essentially when when you can't really detect the amyloid anymore. And as he describes it, it's like, why would you keep taking this drug once you've cleared all of the detectable amyloid out of the brain? Um, because what this drug does is takes the amyloid out. Um, so I thought that was, that was really interesting. And they showed that more than half of people on the trial reached that level by one year. And I think almost three quarters uh, reached it by a year and a half. And they were able to stop taking the drug. What do you guys think are the implications of that? I mean, Wall Street is digesting that in an interesting way. And Umar Rafat at Evercore ISI pointed out, you know, this doesn't necessarily bode well for Lilly meeting these huge expectations from Wall Street for this drug. Um, when I pointed that out to Dan on the in our interview, you know, I said, Wall Street really likes drugs that you take chronically. And this is a, you know, a drug you stop. He's like, we designed this drug for patients, not for Wall Street, <laughs> which I thought was... <laughs> You know, it was an interesting answer um, and maybe not one that Wall Street will like. Well, But, you know, there are implications for that in terms of safety, too. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, he said the same thing to me when we interviewed him. Uh, but he also sort of I don't want to say he left the door open for chronic, more more chronic dosing of denanumab. But, you know, he also did say, like, it, it ultimately will be up to the patient and, and the patient's physician to sort of decide when to stop taking denanumab. I mean, it is a really interesting wrinkle to the story. Or, you know, it is sort of, again, it's different from uh Lakembi uh when Lakembi has to be given again these are given by interve- intravenous infusions uh you know that's every I guess it's every 2 weeks for Lakembi so and, and tenanimab is once a month 
And again, maybe patients would stop taking it after a year. So there's a sort of a convenience factor to that of, you know, whether Wall Street will like it or not. Um, but I think, you know, this, that's, it kind of just gets into the amyloid hypothesis. If you don't have any more amyloid, then why take a drug? And But the other issue there is, you know, what happens longer term, right? Uh, you know, one of the questions going into the study this week was whether or not um, the benefit that is being observed in this study would start to narrow, right? If once, let's say a patient stops taking the drug at 12 months, you know, if you measure the patient at 18 months, uh, you know, is that, is the, you know, is the, the effect of the drug wearing off, so to speak, um, because they're not taking it anymore. And what I, we did ask, uh, Lily, we asked Dan that question, and he said that, you know, the the benefit continues to to widen, you know, from the end of the study. So, like, they have not yet seen a sort of a diminution of the effect of denanumab, even for patients who have taken it. Now, obviously, they've only measured these patients for 18 months. That's the That was the time course of the study. So we will have to wait to see as they follow these patients for longer to sort of see if patients start to regress again and then whether or not they maybe even restart the drug. You're only the second person I've ever heard use the word diminution after Dr. Fauci. Well, that's, I'm in good company. I would have said diminution, but I don't... Is, did I say it right? I probably I probably said it wrong. So, you know, sorry about that. I, I don't know how to pronounce any words <laughs> that I only read. And I guess... I, oh, are those two different words? I didn't know. Diminution and diminution. Moving on. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, speaking of of uh, similarities to lecanemab, we, we heard a similar story from ASI when the uh, lecanemab, it's now called, data were presented last year, which is that you know, they only have as much data as they have, but extrapolating based on what they've seen, they believe that the gap between patients treated with the drug and patients on placebo would only widen with time. But on the point of that being a chronic therapy versus denanumab being one that you only take for so long, if I recall the data correctly, something like two-thirds of patients in the lecanumab study were amyloid negative by the end of the study, which the company heralded as, as a positive. It shows how powerful that drug is at clearing amyloid, which fair enough. But if the clinical practice is going to be, as Lily has suggested and which follows logic, that once you're amyloid negative, you should stop taking this drug because there's no more amyloid to clear and it's an amyloid clearing drug then the same thing would probably apply to Lakembi, if that's what, what neurologists come to decide in terms of, of treatment guidelines, which we're yet to see, and there will be meetings and white papers and et cetera in the time to come. Denanumab is not even FDA approved yet. We're assuming it will be. I think reasonably we're making that assumption, but anything is possible. Um, but it is interesting to, you know, I kind of got around the horn on Wednesday with a few Alzheimer's people who've been tracking this for a long time. And with the caveat that they are like we are reacting to numbers on a press release and not a scientific presentation um, or uh, academic paper while those things are to come. I think the consensus was that they perceive these drugs to be more alike than not when it comes to the efficacy. Adam, as you mentioned, the, the headline number of slowing cognitive decline was better in the Denanumab study than it was in the Lakembi study. But digging into that, and I don't want to get too into the weeds, but Lily, to its credit, stratified patients based upon who they, correctly it turns out, expected to benefit the most from this drug, which included scanning for amyloid, which is obvious because that's what the drug targets, but also scanning for a different protein called tau. And Lily hypothesized that patients with low tau, very low levels of tau, would probably not benefit, so excluded them from the study altogether, and that patients with very high tau conceivably would benefit less because that would suggest more advanced or more rapidly progressing Alzheimer's disease. So they focused the primary analysis on patients with moderate tau. 
and that's where that high number of, of slowing cognitive decline comes from. And it's the primary analysis of the study. This isn't anybody doing anything underhanded. But when you zoom out and look at patients in the study who had both moderate tau and high tau, then the slowing of cognitive decline gets down to more toward 29%, which is much more similar to Lakembi's 27%, which did not do this same tau stratification. Which is to say, I realize that this has been a very long, there's been a lot of Greek letters, which is to say that in the kind of like person with Alzheimer's disease off the street who might be prescribed these medicines um, in the future once both are approved, it's possible that the benefits are pretty similar, or that's at least what, what people told me. And then you get to the seeming disparity in safety between Lily's drug and A-size drug, and that could favor A-size drug. And there's a whole other can of worms we could open about why would the ARIA be higher? We used to think ARIA was just a function of clearing amyloid, but then we saw Lakembi cleared amyloid better than Aduhelm, which we're not even talking about in this conversation, and yet had lower rates of ARIA. And then now that hypothesis is scrambled by the fact that the rates of ARIA seem to be higher with denanumab, which also clears amyloid really well. And I guess to summarize the conversations I had on Wednesday, neurologists just want to see more data. Like there's just still too many open questions to say anything definitive about this drug on its own, but especially this drug in the context of the one we know more about in Lakembi. And back to the reference of prescribing denanumab, Meg, what has Lily said about how fast they're going to file this drug? When is it going to be approved? And then probably the most important question is, is it going to get reimbursed? What's going on with Medicare? Hmm. Are they are they are they yeah. under more pressure now to to get these drugs and so to reimburse these drugs? Um, in terms of Lily's timeline, they said they plan to file with the FDA this quarter, so by the end of June. Um, and Dave Ranks uh, said on CNBC, Dave Ranks being the CEO of uh, Eli Lilly, um, that they're hoping for approval by the end of the year. And so I think, you know, as you pointed out, Adam, uh, that they had already filed. You pointed this out not in our recording, but in a previous conversation. They had already filed for accelerated approval. Of course, they did not get that um, in January as, you know, all of this was sort of brewing and the reimbursement wasn't going to happen anyway and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but because of that, there was already some work done here. So it's perhaps conceivable they might get approval by the end of the year. But even before that happens, the full approval PDUFA date, FDA decision date for Lakembi is July 6th. Um, and so when that happens, I think all eyes will be on the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as to does that trigger them to change their very limited coverage decision for amyloid-targeted Alzheimer's drugs uh, to more broadly cover them. What, what are you guys' expectations or have you heard anything about what that situation is looking like right now? Based on no inside information other than like the public statements of CMS, I think, and I know Lily shares this opinion because they've said so publicly, I think they will reverse course. Um, on or around the full FDA approval of Lakembi. The current policy they have restricts all amyloid targeting therapies, but it was spurred by the FDA approval of Aduhelm, a treatment that is a commercial non-entity and that in the presence of Lakembi and, and probably in the future Denanumab, you can't really imagine it being prescribed. So I imagine that the evidence generated by ASI and now by Lilly will be enough to satisfy the issues that CMS had with the evidence generated by Biogen for Aduhelm. But of course, I, I don't know. And I think the pressure, I mean, we've seen the pressure campaign already in motion, both from the Alzheimer's Association and from uh, other patient groups and other physicians even, um, and, and obviously the companies involved, that the position that CMS has taken, regardless of whether they think it was reasonable in light of Aduhelm, just becomes increasingly untenable. 
as new medicines become available and as the data sets supporting them seem to comport with what CMS wanted from Biogen in the first place. You know, guys, we mentioned Dan Skowronski uh, of Lilly. You know, I thought, Adam, you and Matt had some really nice details from him in your story about the data, just about how long he's been working on this. And I know he also joined you guys at the Stat Summit uh, and touched on that a little bit. Adam, what were your sort of reactions to just sort of his personal just journey through this? Yeah, you know, I always like to ask executives when they get the news, right? Because it's such a huge moment. You know, they've been running these gigantic clinical trials. There's so much risk, so much effort put into it. And so we did. We asked Dan, uh, who is the CSO of Lilly. We asked him, you know, like, when did he hear the news? And he told us, you know, we got a call from Lilly's um, biostats people who are, you know, the ones in charge of basically turning over the cards in the study. And they said he he got the call. He was at home. Uh, you know, obviously, he was very excited about it. And I asked him, like, well, you know, what did you do? And he said, oh, I, you know, I hugged my wife. Um, you know, she, that was like his immediate reaction. So that it was a cool moment. Uh, and we talked about that on our story. And, and like uh, Meg, as you mentioned, he joined us at the summit, at the Breakthrough Summit uh, Wednesday morning to talk more about that. And, you know, again, he, you know, he's been working in Alzheimer's now for, I think, 25 plus years. You know, his first academic paper was around amyloid. Uh, Damien, you know, you, you did a short, a short sort of quick profile of him. Uh, yesterday as well. So, you know, he's been working on this. He had a small company that was helping to do some diagnostic work around Alzheimer's that was eventually acquired by Lilly. Uh, and, you know, he continued on there. And and so, you know, I, I think for him, is you know, he talked about it being very personally gratifying for him. Um, and he also, I think, you know, mentioned that, you know, look, his family has been affected by Alzheimer's, uh, as many, many, many families in this country and around the world we all know people who have been, you know, who have been affected by Alzheimer's. It's a disease that is a, it's a devastating disease, not only for the people who are unfortunately diagnosed with it, but caregivers and other family members. So for I think that you know, he brought that up and that, you know, it was, it, it's, it, it, it's why kind of underscores again why this is so important. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you would pronounce Arvexi. Arvexi. Arvex. Whatever. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.